You ever been falsely accused of something? Probably. Maybe we've all had that happen to us, being falsely accused of a wrong. We're not perfect people, but we're not always guilty of all the things people say we're guilty of, right? I was reading about you on the internet this week. (laughs) I read on Twitter that Bible-believing Christians are evil people who pretend to be holy. Now, that's an accusation. It's a generalization. It's an accusation. And it's a false accusation. What do we do when that happens? Maybe it wasn't a generic tweet against all Christians that hit you. Maybe it was a family member who insulted you or attacked you. Maybe it was someone at work or a friend made that false accusation. Again, we don't claim to be perfect, but we're not guilty of everything. Where do we turn when we're falsely accused? How do we respond? Tweet them back. Tell the world, right? Maybe we should just boycott them. Maybe we should get Elon Musk to buy them. Maybe that would help. You know what? Maybe we should just hide from them. Let's just all move to Idaho. And there's compounds to be had. Sometimes, out of fear, we just roll over. We we don't articulate our faith. We just kind of are silent. Or maybe we try to, you know, convince them that we're not and try to jump through their hoops, which doesn't always work. In fact, almost never works. What should we do when we're falsely accused? You know, in Exodus 21, the Lord gives instructions to the people of Israel just for a, a circumstance when someone might be falsely accused. Now, in this context, it would be falsely accused of murder. But the instruction was to run to the temple or the tabernacle and to declare your innocence. Because there's something about that place, the place where God dwelt with his people, that made it a place of vindication, a place of safety. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, Solomon's son Adonijah runs to the temple to proclaim his innocence, and he clings to the altar Right, he holds on to the altar, the, 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 the big stone you know, rectangle where sacrifices were killed and burnt to the Lord on that altar. Right? And he clings to the altar and he proclaims his innocence. The temple was the place where the innocent were vindicated. And it's no mistake that in Psalm 26, we find in a psalm of vindication, a psalm where the psalmist cries out, O Lord, vindicate me. We find that it also is a psalm designed to be used when pilgrims arrived where? At the temple. They've made this long journey, and maybe their friends were tweeting about how crazy they are for their faith. And maybe they had taken heat from the culture about following the law that God gave Moses too closely, right? And so there they, maybe they had been mocked, but they came to the temple, and where, what did they find at the temple? They found vindication. Not because they were perfect, but because God was gracious and good. And if you keep reading in the Bible, the temple points us forward to what God would ultimately do in the Messiah, Jesus. Because what happens with Jesus? Jesus took on flesh as the second person of the Trinity and dwelt with us. He tabernacled or pitched his tent in our neighborhood And what happens at the temple? The sacrifices were offered for the forgiveness of sins. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And by his once-for-all sacrifice, the whole sacrificial system was completed. It was like we finally had the complete set. It was done. What, it, what happened at the temple pointed forward to Jesus. And so when we think about going to the temple for vindication, really, as we continue to read the Bible, we're talking about going to Jesus, running to Jesus for vindication. We, we must be different than the world around us. And this pilgrim psalm, again, it was given for the occasion of arriving finally at the temple to worship, right? This psalm actually talks about how we're different from the world around us. Why we, although we're not innocent of everything, why we're innocent of this charge of being evil and pretending to be holy. The question is, how are we different? So let's take a look at these verses here and see what's going on in Psalm 26. And I hope there's encouragement for you and a challenge this morning as you consider your own heart before the Lord. But we're picking it up in Psalm 26, verse 1. This is another psalm, either by David or in the Davidic collection. So it says a psalm of David there. And in verse 1, we see the opening, again, line and cry of the psalm. It's a, a, a cry of worship. Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Now listen, we, and we know that David or whoever wrote this psalm was not sinless. And David knew he wasn't sinless, okay? In fact, by the end of the psalm, he's going to ask for God to be gracious to him and to redeem him. So just let's make sure we're really clear at the outset. This is not a claim to perfection or a claim that he doesn't need God's forgiveness for his sins. It is, however, a claim that says, I am not guilty of the evil that is getting pinned on me in this particular circumstance. So he says, vindicate me, Lord, because I live with integrity. In comparison to the world around, Lord, I live with integrity or uprightness. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. That's faith language, right? Lord, I have trusted in you. I have put my faith in you. And I continue to put my faith in you without wavering. Now, without wavering, it's not a claim to perfection. But he is saying, in good times and in bad, Lord, I've trusted you. In good times and in bad, Lord, I've relied on you. And maybe David's life is helpful for us here because David had a lot of highs and a lot of lows. But ultimately, he continued to turn to the Lord, even in his failures, confessing those as failures and turning to the Lord. So there's a lesson there for us, that the life of integrity is a life of trusting the Lord without wavering, no matter what's going on. You know, we could just take time here this morning right now just to pause and say, listen, there's a lot of different things that we're facing as a church family. There's a lot of different trials that you're going through. And some of you are having your best week this week, and some of you are having your worst week this week. And many of us are in between. But the fact is that we're called to live these lives that are marked by holiness, to trust the Lord and to live with integrity. In fact, he's so confident in the fact that he stands the test versus those who have not trusted in the Lord. Watch verse 2. He cries out, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Okay? I'm going to give you this one a little bit more literally. It might, it might punch a little harder, okay? Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my kidneys and my heart. Does that get you? The kidneys. What are the, what are the kidneys? The kidneys were where you feel, okay? And scientists know that today. That's the seat of your emotions, of the kidneys, okay? I'm not serious, but nonetheless, there we are, okay? It's, it's your gut, right? Down, down deep, right? Down deep in here. This is where you feel, right? When the biblical authors use that imagery in the Old Testament of my kidneys, they're saying, it's where I feel. 
And when he talks about the heart, the CSB has translated that actually mind here, but the heart in the Old Testament is the, is the idea of where you think and decide. So in English, it's a little different. We talk about our heart as our feeler, but in the Old Testament, your kidneys are your feeler and your heart is your decider. That's your decider. That's where you think and decide. He says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Examine my emotions. Examine my intellect. Examine my will. And he's not saying set up, uh, you know, like a, a bar for me to jump over. He's saying, I'm laying out my inner man to you, Lord, and I want you to, to examine my condition. I want you to show me where I need to grow. And I want you to actually, again, vindicate me that in this particular case, I'm not guilty of what I've been charged with. So he's asking the Lord to render the verdict, to lay out the evidence and to examine it. But notice in verse 3, the reason why he asks God to examine him, the why he's so confident that he will be vindicated. It says, for your faithful love guides me and I live by your truth. Now, this is so beautiful because here he, the worshiper is saying, God, I'm confident. Why? Because your faithful love, that word faithful love, your covenant faithfulness, your commitment to fulfill your covenant promises unconditionally, regardless of my failures, okay? Lord, your covenant love, it's guiding me or it is before me. That's what's leading me in my life. So when I'm, I'm making these decisions, Lord, and it's been ups and downs, do I go right or do I go left? And Lord, I've been asking, what does your covenant love lead me to do? God, you love me. You have acted in my behalf. So now I choose this way instead of that way, Lord. And so that's why I'm living the way I'm living in distinction to the world around me. And so, Lord, your faithful love is guiding me. When he says, I live by your truth, it's really powerful here. The, the image is I'm, all the ways I'm walking, back and forth, to work, to school, vacation, back to all the, all the places I'm going, Lord. Your truth is what is the dictating principle of how I live. Your truth is what is guiding me in my daily decision making. You see, the psalm assumes this reality. And again, it it culminates in the temple. More on that in a moment. But it assumes this reality. It it assumes that by faith, we are made holy. We are made holy. We are made holy, so we live holy. We are made holy, so we live holy. That's kind of the default setting for the psalm. Lord, vindicate me. I'm not perfect, but Lord, I'm not guilty of that. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to look and to expose uh, what's going on in my heart and to, again, to validate my faith in you. Lord, it's your covenant love that's guiding me. It's your truth that's leading me. We are made holy, so we live holy. But how? Well, in these first three verses, we see that a holy life is marked by faith-driven decision-making. Faith-driven decision-making. Again, it's God's faithful covenant love that guides us here. It's his truth that leads us. So let's talk about our kidneys and our heart, okay? Kidney check. Here we go. Let's think about God's faithful love guiding your emotions. There are two ways this works, okay? On the one hand, as we, as we grow in our love for God and our knowledge of God, when we think about God's faithful love, He's the creator. He's the redeemer. We see how he's redeemed. We see his faithfulness throughout history and then in our lives, right? It actually changes our emotional response to certain situations where we grow as believers. Don't miss it. We grow as believers in responding in godly ways, okay? That's why God gives us children to help us grow in this. Uh, So, 
our children expose when we don't respond in godly ways, actually. Sorry, we jumped the gun on that. No, you, you see growth, don't you? You see growth. Wow, I used to respond like this, but now I'm responding like this. Specifically, what are we talking about? We're talking about godly responses. Like I have greater love for God. I have greater hatred for my own sin and for sin in general. I have greater compassion for others, right? I have greater patience when I've been wronged. I have a less of a proclivity to bitterness and self-righteous anger, right? That's all positive growth. My kidneys are doing well in those situations. Why? Because God's faithful love is guiding me, okay? But sometimes God's faithful love guides us in showing us where our emotions have been wrong. Did you know your kidneys can be wrong? Your gut isn't always right. And so sometimes we don't love God. We love ourselves more. Sometimes we don't hate our sin We love it, and we want to hide it and nurture it. Sometimes we're not compassionate for others. No, we just live with self-pity. And when our emotions, when our kidneys are getting it wrong, God's faithful love, it it, it guides us and leads us to say, no, that's not the right response. And so I'm not going to let my kidneys make these decisions. I'm going to to follow God's truth. And that's, isn't that interesting? He says, I live by your truth. I was walking around, and your truth was what guided me not my emotions. A holy life is marked by faith-driven decision-making, not just in our kidneys, though, but in our heart. Now we're talking intellect and will. And I love the New Testament articulation of this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You know this passage. It's very familiar, talking about us sacrificing ourselves to God's will, right? But the, the terminology in Romans 12, 2, is that I'm no longer conformed to the image of the world, but I'm transformed, changed, how? By the renewal of my mind, by what I think and how I think. So now I know certain truths about God and myself, that have changed the way I live. See, we're made holy, so we live holy. So now I think differently. I think differently about, again, God, who God is. It's not some generic deity. No, I know who God is as revealed through his word. He's gifted his word to us to know this. And and now I, I know a little bit more about why the universe was created for his glory. And I don't have all the answers, but I do know that when I'm trusting him, I'm in the place I'm supposed to be. And then when I make decisions, it's interesting, Romans 12, too, he ends up in that, to to test and affirm what is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I've got the capacity now to follow God's spirit. And as I do that, I'm making decisions that honor him. So a holy life is marked by faith-driven decision-making. How about your life? Listen, everybody knows what a faith-driven decision is on Sunday morning. You come to church, baby, right? Here we are. But the fact is, every decision we make as a believer, every decision we make must be motivated by faith in God. What do we do at work? Yeah. Yeah, your faith has to determine how you function in the workplace, how you speak, how you behave, right? How you approach school. School's starting next week, right? It's coming in two weeks. It's happening. You don't let faith dictate how you behave at school, how you act in those classes, how you behave with your friends? How about our finances? What does faith have to do with finances? Turns out, a lot. You know, let faith in the Lord dictate your financial priorities, how you think about how you should spend your money, how you should plan for the future. I wonder, are are we ready to lay open to the Lord our hearts and our kidneys? (laughs) To say, Lord, examine me. Listen, we're made holy, so we live holy. Holy. 
And there's an opportunity, I think, as we consider the psalm to say, you know what, I could grow a little in this. I could grow a little in faith-driven decision-making. Maybe this is a, an expression here, especially in verse 3 or verse 2, of spiritual spring cleaning, right? Where you kind of open up the windows a little bit and you, you get out the cleaning supplies and you open that closet you don't want to look at and you get in there and you get to work. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to ask the Lord to show you where you need to grow in this area? We're made holy, so we live holy. But it's not just about faith-driven decision-making. Verse 4 and 5, it's also about who we choose to let influence us. Watch verse 4. Again, the psalmist affirms, I do not sit with the worthless or associate with hypocrites. I hate a crowd of evildoers, and I do not sit with the wicked. Okay, so just so we're all clear, right? The issue is not literally sitting with unbelievers, right? Sitting here is a metaphor for being influenced by unbelievers, for joining with unbelievers in their ungodly lifestyle, for basically saying, I want to be in this group, I want to be affirmed in this group, and I'm following actually the model of this group. I'm I'm following these unbelievers in their evil or wicked or hypocritical ways. So verse 4, he says, I do not sit with the worthless. And that might seem harsh to you, but remember that in Psalm 25, that word worthless is used to refer to worthless idols. So the, the people who worship worthless idols become like them. And so they're empty, is the idea. They're worshiping false gods, they're empty, and you don't want to join them in that pursuit. That's the idea. So here, we're made holy, so we live holy. So the psalmist says, I I don't chase those idols anymore. I've changed, Lord. I don't associate with the hypocrites. You know, hypocrites here, the idea is hiding their sin from God. That's the idea. You hide it from others, but you're ultimately trying to hide it from God. He's like, I'm not into that, where I say one thing on Sunday and I do another thing this week. He says, I'm not doing that. We're made holy, so we live holy. I would venture to guess that we maybe have some work to do here. When he says, I hate a crowd of evildoers, he's not saying I have personal animosity and I, and I you know, articulate hate against unbelievers. No, he's saying, I don't want to follow them in their godless lifestyle. I do not want to join with them in that lifestyle. What they're doing, the sin that they're pursuing, I hate that because it's wrong. And so we agree with the Lord here. And so here the psalmist is saying, Lord, I'm with you here. You see, A holy life is marked by faith-driven decision-making, but a holy life is also marked by resisting evil influence. By resisting evil influence. There's a recognition here that all of our relationships with unbelievers have to have an evangelistic posture. Meaning this, we understand that we rub shoulders with unbelievers all the time. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he's like, I'm not telling you not to talk to unbelievers or see them at the gym or, you know, be nice to them. I'm just saying that when it comes to our relationship with unbelievers, we have a different understanding. We know they're not believers. So we have to be evangelistically oriented and guarded with them. We seek to influence unbelievers, but we also are very cautious that they don't influence us to worship idols, right? So there is a separation here and a distinction. He says, again, we resist evil influence. We don't sit with them in that sense. Now, how are, how are unbelievers or how are evil people, the wicked, how are they going to influence us? I thought of a few ways. I'm sure there are more. Let's just think about it. The first would be, of course, following role models who don't love Jesus, 
So that's one way where the wicked will influence you, maybe unintentionally, right? So even if it's an area where it's not necessarily like a religious pursuit, but I'm going, okay, I see what they're doing in their career, and there are certain things I might want to emulate there, but at the same time, i got to remember, they don't love the Lord, and so there's going to be a difference with me, right? And there's just an awareness. There's always a caution. There's always a note. I would love to introduce them to Jesus and share his love for them, but I just got to be careful as I, as even I might follow their example in the workplace, I just want to be careful that I don't, I don't buy everything they're selling, right? There's an awareness there, a distinction. So be careful of the role models that you're following. Of course, this might happen because of celebrities, right? And so it's very difficult with celebrities because so often what's being forced through media, what's being forced into our sight is just a godless lifestyle. A second way evil might influ- influence us is where we might accept counsel from unbelievers without discernment, okay? So this is the deal. So you're in a situation where you need some advice, and like most people, we'll get a lot of advice, right? And anytime somebody is giving you, you know, advice, they're telling you what they think you should do or what they think about your situation, they are counseling you, right? So you're getting counsel. And, and here's the deal. You gotta sift that counsel, through the Word of God, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm only going to ever talk to Christians. Well, no, that's not the point. Of course, of course, you would be wise to get counsel from believers, obviously. But sometimes you're going through an issue and, and somebody's going to give you their feedback. You might not even ask for it. You ever had that happen to you? This is New Jersey. It happens to me all the time. People tell me, I, I didn't ask. Well, okay, there you go. Thanks for that input, right? So now what do you do with it? The, 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 the question is, what do you do with it? And you got to sift it you got to sift it through the Word of God. You can't just accept it and go, oh, it worked for them. I'll just do that. If we're not asking the question, is this compatible with a Christ-honoring lifestyle, then we'll miss the point. And maybe we'll be influenced by the wicked. A third way evil might influence us is through uncritical media or entertainment consumption. What you read, what you watch, what you scroll through and look at on your phones, right? Again, the point is not to stick your head in the sand. The point is to say this. If I'm watching something, i got to be aware that if it's not coming from a Christ-centered worldview, I need to interpret it in light of that. It needs to be filtered. And a lot of times, our Christ-centered worldview might say, no, I'm not going to watch that. But sometimes, we, you just watch and you analyze the message and you take it apart and you need to think critically about it by faith, right? We have to draw the line. So the reality is this. You might need to ask the question this morning, am I being influenced by evil and I didn't even know it? Am I sitting with the wicked and I didn't know it? There's an opportunity here. We're made holy, so we live holy. There's an opportunity to grow in this area. Now, what we're not saying is we don't talk to unbelievers or we don't love those who aren't in the church, or we're not going to serve them because they don't love Jesus, or we're not going to invest in them. No, no, no. Again, we have this evangelistic posture where we say we are sent here, we are God's SWAT team on earth, sent here to love and to care, to protect and provide, right? We're on a rescue mission. That's what we're here to do. But as we do that, we must be careful that we are not influenced by this unbelieving world that we're called to love and care for. We do speak to unbelievers. You should. We do love, serve, and invest in unbelievers. You should, but we always do it with an agenda. We want to glorify God. We want to show them how good our God is. See, we live holy. We're made holy, so we live holy. doesn't stop there. Watch verse 6. This is really kind of the, the climax. Again, you have to envision a pilgrim who's traveled a long way, arriving finally at the Temple Mount for worship. 
He says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, Lord. So you could envision, even today, if you go to visit the Western Wall in Jerusalem, there's a hand-washing station there where uh, Jews will ritually wash their hands as part of their uh, ritual purity. And so they'll wash their hands so their hands are clean, right? So here, going under the temple, these pilgrims had definitely washed themselves, some of them their whole bodies in the precursor to baptism and in a full body immersion, some just washing their hands, right, as they approach the temple. And they finally get up on the temple and he proclaims, Lord, uh, I wash my hands in innocence. Again, I'm not perfect, but Lord, I've trusted in you, and I'm here to worship you. And in fact, when he talks about going around your altar, there's this picture of finally being up on the Temple Mount. It's been a long journey for many. And there's the altar there where the priests are offering the sacrifices. And you can envision pilgrims mingling about in this temple area. And what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord there because that's the place where sacrifice was made to to provide the forgiveness for their sins. So it's like, again, this is the highlight. So I'm here, Lord. I'm here worshiping you because of your provision of sacrifice. Verse 7, he goes into the details. Raising my voice in thanksgiving, singing, right? And telling about your wondrous works. So there they were on the Temple Mount, and the pilgrims are singing Psalm 26, and they're singing these other psalms, and they're talking about, what did God do in your life this year? What did God do in your life this year? And they're hearing testimonies, much like we did this morning, about God's faithfulness and His work in their lives. So they're at the Temple Mount, they're up there, the the sacrifice has been made, and they're worshiping together. And he's like, this is it. I'm here. I'm experiencing it. Notice verse 8, where this leads. Lord, the proclamation here, Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. See, the temple was the place of vindication because the temple was where God's glory resided. The temple was the place of vindication because God in his glory was willing to condescend and to provide a a sacrifice so that his people could be forgiven. And the temple points us to Jesus. In John 1.14, we not only read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but we also read that we beheld His glory. The glory as of the unique one, the only begotten one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Did you know that when we look to Jesus, we see God's glorious provision for us? We see grace and truth walking around? And because of Jesus' work on the cross for us, this activity of the, the pinnacle, the high point of worshiping the Lord and being vindicated because of God's faithfulness and God's glory, it doesn't just happen in Jerusalem. It happens anywhere someone has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That's why Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered, right? I'm with them. I'm there. Because Jesus is the glory of God on display And Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice. That's why he says, oh Lord, I love the house where you dwell. I love the temple, Lord. Now listen, it's not a stretch for us to say, as we envision the pilgrim coming here, that the New Testament expression of this same idea of thinking is that we love to be with God's people worshiping him. You see, A holy life is marked by, yes, faith-driven decision-making, resisting evil influence. It's also marked by worship with the saints. For better or for worse, these are my people, (laughs) right? Here we are. And there is this sense of the high point in the psalm where it's like, we're finally made it. And you're like, this is it? Yes, this is it. We made it, right? And it's not anticlimactic because 
Well, because of what we heard this morning. Because God is invading lives, changing lives for His glory. And so, you imagine, here we are on the Temple Mount, as it were. And there's no more sacrifice happening because of the cross. The sacrifice has been made. So what do we do? We mill about and we sing together and we testify together about what God has done and who he is. There's this this recognition that whatever's going on outside the world, whatever Twitter says about us, whatever my family says, friends, whatever's going on out there, the accusations that may come against us, whatever's going on out there, I'm vindicated at the temple. I'm vindicated when I'm with God's people. Why? Because we're looking to his glory and what he's done for us in Christ. That's why we're vindicated. That's, that's why we have hope in the midst of a dark world. You could argue that the gathering of the saints, what we're doing right now, is a moment of sanity in an otherwise crazy world. This is just our collective catch-our-breath moment, right? Where we can say, you know what? It is a crazy world out there. It is, it is a hard thing to follow Jesus in this world. But it's a little less hard when we're together. And when we're singing these songs... I mean, you know, we're, we're singing 10,000 reasons and we're singing in Christ alone and we're singing on Christ, the solid rock I stand. You should hear yourselves. It's good. It's good to raise my voice in thanksgiving and it's good to tell about your wondrous works. You know, we love having baptisms. I love forcing people to speak in public because they hate it. <laughs> There's some grace there. But you know what? On the whole, it's hard to do, but it's a blessing. It's a blessing just to hear people testify and say, let me tell you what God has done. I, I, we got to have that if we're going to survive in this world. We got to have that weekly spiritual reminder and, and that kind of shot of adrenaline, that encouragement. Again, living holy, what does it look like? It looks like worshiping with the saints, valuing God's glory above all else keeping our focus on him and getting that reminder as we go through the rest of our week. I just wonder this morning, do you prioritize it enough? As much as we love the corporate gathering, this is not it. Because we're going to need more support than just this corporate gathering. You're going to need individual prayer support. You're going to need accountability. You're going to need encouragement and discipleship. I just wonder, are you prioritizing that enough? We're made holy, so we live holy. Are you? Well, finally, the psalm kind of returns to this idea of vindication back to where it started. Verse 9. He says, Do not destroy me along with sinners or my life along with men of bloodshed in whose hands are evil schemes and whose right hands are filled with bribes. So again here, we're not perfect, but there's an affirmation in the psalm. I have separated myself from those who manipulate, who scheme, who murder, who bribe, right? I've said no to those sinful pursuits. I'm not worshiping the God of money or the God of career advancement or the God of peer approval or power or whatever it is, right? And so there's an acknowledgement here that God will judge unbelievers, but I'm not in that group. So Lord, I'm saying, be true to your word and do not destroy me. Do not judge me with those who have rejected you. That doesn't mean we don't love them and we don't seek to win them to Christ, but there's a recognition at the end of the day, there will be a line drawn in the sand. And Lord, I'm on this side. I'm with you. Which is again, the life of integrity. Watch verse 11. But in contrast to those wicked, manipulating, like lying, bribing, scheming others, right? But in contrast to them, I live with integrity. Same term from previously in the Psalm verse one. But I live with integrity. 
So Lord, redeem me and be gracious to me. I, I love this. It's, he's not, again, he's not saying, I don't need redemption. He's saying, Lord, I'm, I'm, you've made me holy. And I'm seeking to let your, your faithful love guide me and to live holy. And Lord, on the whole, that's a life of integrity. So you can see it. So examine me, Lord. But Lord, redeem me. Keep doing your work in me. Lord, be gracious to me. Because I know I'm not coming to you on this basis of, oh, I'm perfect. I'm coming to you, Lord, because you're the redeemer. Why is the temple the place of vindication? Why, why is the cross the, the moment of vindication? Because God is gracious and the redeemer. Because he's rescuing sinners. So we don't come to him because we've earned it. We come to him because he's made it happen for us. He's the redeemer. He's the rescuer. He's the gracious one. So yes, he affirms integrity on the whole. I'm not guilty of this particular charge, Lord. But Lord, continue your work in me. Redeem me and be gracious. And then there's, the psalm concludes with this beautiful expression of confidence in the Lord. He says, my foot stands on level ground. I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. So the expression, my foot stands on level ground, this is a metaphor for saying no to temptation. The contrast would be uneven ground, slipping and falling. That's the idea. So he says, Lord, you know, it's dangerous out there. But I'm actually standing on level ground. And, and you know, we might say solid ground, right? Uh, just thinking about singing, uh, in Christ the solid rock I stand, right? So we might say it that way. But the idea, of course, is that I'm standing on level ground, meaning I'm saying no to these temptations, and I'm not falling into this idolatry that is all around me. So my foot stands on level ground. Why? Because God's the Redeemer. Because God is gracious. Because His faithful love guides me. Because His truth leads me. And therefore, I will bless the Lord in the assemblies. Now, which, what are the assemblies? Either... It's multiple times for the people of God gathering, right? Or multiple places where there's different groups of people. And it doesn't make a huge difference which it is. Because the fact is, he's saying, as often as I get opportunity, Lord, I will testify about your goodness. I I will say, I don't preach sermons, Lord, but I will tell the story of how you've been at work in my life. And I will articulate and say, God, you are good. And let me just tell you about what God has done in my life. You see, a holy life is marked by faith-driven decision-making, resisting evil influences, worship with the saints, and ultimately, it's marked by integrity. We stand apart from the world around us. No scheming, no tax frauds, no, no defrauding customers, no manipulation of friends or family. No, we don't do that. We live with integrity. There's a moral line here, and God's the one who draws it. We tell the truth. We fulfill our obligations, even paying our debts, wink, wink, right? We do what is right, not to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor. Not to try to work off a debt, but because our debt has already been paid. That's the good news. And so we say to the Lord, keep redeeming, keep forgiving. Lord, be gracious to me. It's so interesting in a psalm where we have this separation, uh, you know, between the world and the believer here. There's also this affirmation, but God, you're at work rescuing. It's vindicate me, not because I'm perfect, but because of your good character. I wonder, is your life marked by integrity this morning? Do you know areas where you've been cutting some corners? Areas where you know I should have done that, but I didn't, or I should have said that, but I didn't? 
Can I encourage you that you are made holy in Christ? So live holy. That in Jesus you're forgiven. So admit that wrong. Confess your sin. Be confident in what the Lord has done. Have that conversation with that person that you need to talk to. Make it right. Not because you have to, to earn God's favor, but because we've already received His favor. We're made holy. So the calling is now to live holy. My friend Joe Keller out in California, many of you remember Joe. Uh, he came out to a Spiritual Life Conference. He, he has this bizarre theory about how you should pick a seat in the movie theater. Okay, just work with me on this, okay? If you know my friend Joe, you know he's weird, so whatever. All right, so uh, Joe has this theory. When you go to the movies, the whole point of going to the movies is that you're not watching the movie at home, right? And the whole point of going to the movies is to see it on the big screen. So he says you, sh- you should strategically pick a seat in the theater where the screen fills as much of your field of vision as is reasonable, right? So you want, you want to have a nice, good view of the thing. If you sit too far back, you might as well be home watching it on your 22-inch plasma, right? So he's like, you want to get a, a nice experience of the big screen. You can debate, Joe, whether or not he, he, he's right or wrong, but that's the idea. Fill this field of vision with the movie and just, you know, enjoy it. Like, that's the theory, right? Filling the field of vision. Psalm 26, in one sense, is basically a psalm where the psalmist de- declares, this is who I am because my field of vision, Lord, is filled with your glory. I have filled my field of vision with your glory, Lord. And so, yes, I am different from the world around me. I'm not better than them, but, Lord, I'm different because you've, been a, you've, you've done a work. I've been made holy, Lord, so, yes, I live holy. And so I come to you for vindication. I come to you for affirmation. Don't we see this modeled ultimately for us in Jesus? Who shows us what it's like to live the holy life? through ups and downs, to to say no to temptation and to have hard conversations, to do what's right, no matter how popular it is? Of course it is. And so Jesus gives us that model, but he also gives us the means to be forgiven when we fail. You might be sitting here thinking, it's a tough psalm. I mean, the whole week I'm sitting there, I'm reading this thing, and I'm thinking, this is not me some days. I'm not always holy. But the temple is the place of vindication because that's where the sacrifice was made. The psalm points to Jesus, not only as our model, but as the provision of forgiveness. Maybe you're here this morning and you're discouraged because you've let something else fill your field of vision. You're just focused on something else. My friend Spurgeon said it this way. He said, some people appear to have their miseries, their sorrows, their sins before their eyes. Is that you this morning? Can all you see this, this week are your challenges or your failures or your hurts? Because if that's all you're seeing, you're not seeing things rightly. Spurgeon said, But happy is that believer who always has God's loving kindness before him. Happy is that believer who in spite of the miseries and the challenges and the difficulties, they're very real, Happy is that believer who says, our God is a good God, who's fulfilled his promises, who took on flesh and dwelt with us, who died for my sins and rose from the dead, who's made me holy. So now I live holy. It's hard. The question is, will we do that? Will we follow our Lord Jesus by faith 
and living holy lives. Would you pray with me and we'll ask him to help us. Lord, again, we pause this morning with Psalm 26, Lord, uh, really confronting this reality that we are called to be different. And yes, we're falsely accused sometimes, Lord, and we praise you. We praise you that we don't have to argue for ourselves, but rather we can take refuge in you. We thank you that the temple was the place of vindication and that it points us, Lord Jesus, to your ultimate work on the cross for us. Lord, we also see here, though, the validity that you call us to holy living, to integrity, to say no to evil influence. Lord, even in our emotions and our decision-making to, to respond to circumstances with faith-driven obedience. Lord, we see here the glory of gathering with the saints. And Lord, we want to say with the psalmist here, we love your house. We love to be with your people, to sing your praise, to tell of your goodness. But Lord, we also recognize that it is very likely that there are areas where we are struggling with integrity, struggling with idolatry. Maybe evil is influencing us. Lord, maybe we are sitting with the wicked. And so we ask that you would help us. We praise you that we have forgiveness in Christ, and we pray that you would lead us by your grace. Lord, you would lead us by that loving kindness to live for you. Lord, we praise you that you have made us holy, and we ask now that you would help us to live holy. And we pray these things in confidence in you because of what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. Amen.